This is Politics is Everything, and I'm Kara Ong Whaley. We did something new this week and held a Twitter Spaces with our resident election gurus, Kyle Kondik, managing editor of Sabato's Crystal Ball, and Miles Coleman, associate editor. We talk about our latest election projections, what to watch, and the state of play in key Senate, House, and gubernatorial races in the final days of election 2022. Enjoy our conversation. Um, this question has come up quite a bit lately on Twitter, but for our listening audience, which races are you both watching as indicators of how election results are trending in the Senate and in the House? Hey, everybody. Um, this is Kyle Kondik. Um, so to answer your question, uh, there, well, you know, we're the University of Virginia Center for Politics. I guess maybe we have a little bit of a, a bias toward our home state, but there are three House races in Virginia that I think can help us sort of measure the level to which it's a Republican wave or if it's a Republican wave. And it's the second district in Hampton Roads, Elaine Luria's seat, and with three Democratic held seats, Abigail Spanberger's seat in Northern slash Central Virginia, and then Jennifer Wexton's seat in Northern Virginia. Um, Virginia, too, is a very marginal district politically. Biden won it by two. Spanberger's district is a little bluer. Biden won it by seven. And then Wexton's seat is very Democratic. Uh, Biden won it by 18. And so, um, you know, if the Republicans just win two, that's probably a sign they're winning the House, but maybe maybe it's stalling out a little bit. If they win two and seven, that's a pretty good night, I think. They win all three, that's like a mega wave. So, um, you know, there are a bunch of other House races you could point to in other places. I'm happy to talk about some of those. But I do think, and the other thing about Virginia is that um, we should have the votes in relatively early in the evening. Um, so it should, you know, those three races, I think, taken together might give us a good sense as to what's going, what's going on. Miles, what do you, what else are you looking at? Well, I'll kind of transition to the Senate and, you know, probably one of the key races for Senate is going to be Pennsylvania. You know, that's a state that unfortunately for election night purposes, you know, is probably not going to have all of its votes tallied on election night. Um, you know, this is something we've been talking about in some of our recent, uh, articles is it seems like you know every senate cycle there seems like there's like a who to funk it race <laughs> right you know staying with virginia you know that was when mark warner was almost upset in 2014 i think you could probably say that was susan collins in 2020 uh you know i see you know i'm seeing these polls with republicans closing in in a state like new hampshire which some which a month ago was you know more firmly in their column uh, so if they win that, I think that that you know we are on track for a very good Republican night. You know we still have it as leans down, uh, but otherwise, as the night gets later, uh, we'll be looking at states like Nevada out, out west, which you know looks you know we have it we have it as as, as a, a toss up, but the early vote looks decent for Republicans. However, that is a state where polling tends to underestimate Democrats, a rare state in that way. Well, so we're going to drill down a little bit more into uh, the races. But first, uh, we have a great question from Sarah who asks whether you feel that abortion is less of a concern now than when the Dobbs decision was made. Um, look, I think it's still important. It just doesn't seem like it's like the defining issue of the election for a lot of people. And, you know, the other thing is like, let's say like my sort of, I think things are sort of moving more toward the Republicans way in both, in both the house and, and the Senate. So, you know, let's say they end up winning both chambers. I think it'll be tempting to say, Oh, well, abortion didn't matter. But the thing is, is you, you can't, you can't just, you know, we don't get to run 
uh, elections as science experiments. Like we can't run the same election over, you know, a different time without the Dobbs decision and see what happened. You know, it quite, it's quite possible that maybe the Republicans, you know, wouldn't have done or, you know, uh, uh, would have done better without the Dobbs decision. You know, maybe not. Um, uh, but, you know, there's there's also the, I think there may also be some sense that, oh, well, abortion doesn't matter. Um, if the Republicans do well anyway. And I think that would probably be the wrong takeaway, too, because, you know, abortion is a kind of a permanent issue in American politics. And I'd say it's, it's even more salient now, given the, the greater power of states basically have to, to limit, limit or ban abortion now that Roe v. Wade is gone. Um, and so even if it's not the defining issue this time, it's still going to be really important going into the future. And I do think Republicans have a liability on that issue overall, even though it may not necessarily, you know, uh, uh, bite them as much as maybe we might have thought in this in this election. And I will sort of add to that with elections, you know, they're decided state by by state. You know, I can see it being more of a salient issue in a state like Michigan uh, where they have a referendum. Uh, you know, it looks like the pro-choice side is going to pass by a decent margin. Now, I can see it being more of a front and center issue in a state like that. Um, so, you know, that's something I'll be looking for as well. You know, just to piggyback on that, too, I think that we probably will have some other statewide ballot issues on abortion in states that, that in which it's it's easier than not, you know, relatively easy to get on the ballot. Like I'm, you know, I'm, I'm from Ohio. Ohio is a state where, you, where it's it's not that hard to get um, ballot issues on. I would think that Ohio will probably have a high profile abortion ballot issue sometime in the next couple of years. And, you know, that could be a big feature of our next election cycle is, you know, more and more states like Michigan, you know, having um, um, having some sort of statewide ballot issue about this. Again, not every state really has the capacity for that. Um, it's easier in some states than others. And again, Ohio is one that sort of stands out where I can see that happening. And then one kind of last quick note on that is, uh, you know, something that we're seeing at least in polling is it looks like red states where Demo where you no, know, there's a very real possibility that they may pass more abortion restrictions or already have. You know that those tend to be looking maybe a bit better than you would expect for Democrats compared to say, you know, something like uh, New York, which is a very blue state, which is seems to be voting more like a normal midterm. Sarah, thanks so much for that question. Really great. Uh, if you're tuning in, thank you so much. Please feel free to tweet at us or DM any questions, but I'm going to move on. Um, Kyle and Miles, the Senate is really coming down to a jump ball situation and candidates need to avoid either a bad toss and they certainly can't miss a foul or a violation. Um, a lot of eyes are, of course, on Pennsylvania. Um, how is John Fetterman's lead eroded and how is the the race, how has Mehmet Oz been able to get the race into a deadlocked position? Yeah, it seems like it's that, you know, Fetterman's lead is just sort of slowly, slowly eroded to the point where the I think it's probably right to look at it as, as something of a polling tie. There was a morning call, Muhlenberg College poll that came out recently that was like 47, 47 and based on sort of my understanding of the public polling and also little scraps that I've been able to pick up about some of the internal stuff. Um, I think that's kind of where it is right now. And, you know, so I would say that, you know, Fetterman was ahead for almost the entire cycle or at least the general election period, but the trajectory has been better for Oz. And look, I mean, it's a, 
you know, it looks like a Republican leaning environment out there. And so in a, in a tie situation in an open seat, you know, you'd probably rather be the, the Republican candidate in, in, in a year like this. So that's when, you know, we're doing our final projections and final picks. So it'll come out on Monday. Um, you know, we've had Fetterman favored in that race, but, uh, you know, we, we reserve the right to change our minds. So um, we will see what we uh, um, what more we learn about that race over the weekend. Well, but something we did something similar for, uh, or at least that it seemed to be good going along a similar tra- tra- trajectory, um, is the race in our home state last year, which we ended up uh, uh, calling correctly. You know, we just saw, you know, even if Oz is just tied in some of these polls, if you look at where he was a month ago, just the momentum he's had, you know, I think, you know, saw uh, you basically saw the same thing. Uh, in California with the recall, you know, towards the end, everything seemed to be breaking in Newsom's favor. He overperformed um, our expectations. Uh, and, you know, something I will keep, uh, you know, something I've been r- 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 reminding people of is unlike some of these other states like Georgia or North Carolina, Pennsylvania, yes, it has somewhat of a mail-in vote, but it's primarily an election day voting state. So if there is any uh, more late momentum in Oz's favor, you know, it may be it the electorate may be particularly sensitive to something like that. Just to put a number on it. So I think there have been about a million votes, give or take, counted in Pennsylvania. But total votes in Pennsylvania were um, it was five million in 2018. You know, I think the expectation is turnout, particularly in, in some of the states that, that have these really high profile races will probably be pretty robust. So, you know, even if the total number of votes is like 2018, that we're only talking about 20% of the, uh, you know, of, of the votes cast in, in, um, in, in, in Pennsylvania so far, um, you know, and, and again, that's also, you know, you look at these sort of late polls and, and um, you know, you, you kind of, you kind of think about, you know, which way are the undecideds likely to break? Uh, and again, in a year like this, um, you, you might you you just re- I think would rather be um, you know, rather rather be the the uh, uh, Republicans. Actually, Kyle, you know that's why you know going back to like your home state, you know, that's why we've had Ohio as leans are this whole time. Is you know even though we've been seeing these polls with um, with Tim Ryan up, you know a, a bit less now, but you know that's that was always sort of baked into our thinking there. I think. Yeah, that that that's uh, um, you know that that's that that's absolutely right. And you know we've had um, we've had Wisconsin and North Carolina as lean Republican the whole cycle as well, and and that was also part of our part of our thinking was that even though the races seem close and I think are close, um, you know, in that in those states you just sort of expect things to you know maybe the Republicans to just do a little bit better amongst the you know uh, um, amongst undecided um, portion of the uh, um, of the electorate. Well, I want to kind of follow up on that and specifically ask about Arizona, which is a race that we're following pretty closely. And earlier this week, uh, Blake Masters, the Republican Trump endorsed candidate, nudged out the libertarian Mark Victor. Do you think he can consolidate the Republican vote? Well, a point we made on that is, uh, in fact, we were, uh, we wrote about that in an article yesterday. Uh, in 2018, there was something similar where the Green Party candidate uh, ended up dropping then out. Uh, she took about two and a half percent, but you know it was still enough for uh, Cinema to win there. Uh, but you know I think just a lot of people. You know it 
it's probably something that could help Masters at the, the margins, but I mean, I just think a lot of people vote third party as a protest. All right, we have, I want to bring in a question that we have from Twitter, um, from one of our listeners tuning in. Thank you so much. Do you think that the Republican control of the House and the Senate in this election will play to the benefit of the Democrats in 2024? You know, sometimes a sitting president can use, uh, you know, an opposition party Congress as a foil. I'd say probably the great historical example of that is the um, when Harry Truman won re-election way back in 1948, he ran against the so-called, you know, do-nothing Congress. You know, the Republicans had won in this huge wave in 1946, um, both the House and the Senate. Um, you know, and, and actually, there, you know, if in fact the Republicans do well this year, there might be some parallels to 1946 in 2022 in that, you know, different circumstances. But um, the nation was coming off of a, you know, a huge disruptive challenge in, in, in the form of World War II. In some ways, you could say, well, we're coming off a huge huge challenge, you know, just with COVID and, and, and this disruption it made to, to daily life. And there were, um, uh, that was also a time of, of, of uh, you know, shortages and other things, you know, some of the same things we've dealt with now, again, a d- different era and all that, but, um, but, you know, Truman ended up winning a surprisingly strong victory in 1948, had big coattails and um, he was able to run against Congress. And I'd say more recently, you know, Clinton in 96, um, maybe Obama in 2012 to 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 a limited degree. Um, it can be helpful to to have a foil, although um, it's also just hard to get anything done. Now, granted, if you're the president and um, there are certain policy things you want to do that you can't get done, um, maybe sometimes that's helpful because maybe it helps you seem more moderate or something, or you're not being that uh, that disruptive. Yeah, well, uh, kind of going off that very quickly. It's uh, there's this. Uh... There's this Lyndon Baines Johnson account on here that I tend to uh, retweet out a lot. And what he was saying recently is that they called uh, they called the 1946 election the beefsteak election because the whole issue was the prices of meat. Uh, you know, and, you know, as we talk, you know, as we sit here, you know, many decades later, talk talking about, you know, issues like gas prices, food prices, you know, it's almost the same thing. You know, that's why. I think Harry Truman used to say something to the effect of, well, you know, it's war is easy, peace is hell. <laughs> so before we move uh, to the House races, we have another question that came in about the Senate race in New Hampshire. Um, how much credence, how much credence do you put into the recent polling that shows Boldick being very competitive and even surpassing Hassan? I kind of, th- my expectation for this race is that I, I still think Hassan is favored, but um, I, it feels to me like kind of like the 2014 Senate race in New Hampshire when Gene Shaheen won another term against uh, Scott Brown, who of course had been a senator from Massachusetts and then um, moved to New Hampshire to challenge uh, Gene Shaheen in, in 2014. Uh, I think Shaheen won by like three points. Um, yep. I'm thinking some, you know, kind of similar there, although you, you couldn't rule out, you know, I don't think you could rule out an upset necessarily. Um, and, uh, you know, it's just another sign of, um, I think, the trajectory where this, this thing is going and that um, it just feels like a lot of the indicators are fairly positive for Republicans. You know, I was, joke about this sometimes, but um, it's, been, it's felt kind of topsy-turvy, and I think it has been legitimately topsy-turvy, but, you know, sometimes I think, would we do better picking the election like a year in advance or a day in advance? And this may be the kind of year where 
we might have actually done better a year in advance. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's just, yeah, 2020 <laughs> actually was that way too. You remember, um, remember the, the, you know, the New York Times did all that polling and, and they did, they did some initial polls before the pandemic that actually ended up being, you know, more accurate than the ones that they were doing in the fall. Um, you know, in, in terms of reflecting a, you know, a really close election where Biden was like a small favorite, which is how it ended up turning out. But, um, um, but, but, you know, that's just, you know, again, it's, it's, it's been, um, it's been up and down, but it sort of feels like we're kind of back to where, where we were, you know, many months ago before the Dobbs decision. So on that question of polling, um, we actually have another question come in from Javier, who asked, there appears so much evidence and po- uh, evidence and polling that contradicts each other. Uh, what surprise results might we see this election cycle? Well, this is, uh, you know, this is something we were talking again about last night, me and Kyle, is, uh, you know, these races don't happen in a vacuum. You know, we're to the point in the Senate where in a state like uh, Georgia, where uh, where you have uh, Governor Kemp, who's doing very well, uh, you know, are his coattails going to be enough to maybe get Herschel Walker to win outright? Uh, sort of along those lines, you know, yes, the polling has been um, in Pennsylvania, sort of the trajectory has basically been pro-Oz. But, you know, maybe an argument for Fetterman pulling that, that out is maybe it's the, the uh, uh, maybe it's the Democratic candidate for governor, Josh Shapiro, uh, who gives Fetterman the type of boost he needs. Yeah, that, that actually there was a there was a point I, I wanted to make on Pennsylvania that I did. And I'm glad Miles brought it back up. And that is that, you know, there's been so much f- focus lately um, not without justification on, on Fetterman's problems and, and, you know, his poor performance at the debate and, and other things. And um, at the same time, like, you know, Fetterman's been getting hammered for weeks. And yet it's not clear at all that Oz is actually leading or favored. You know, and it's, it's just, you know, w- maybe we've even lost track, I think, maybe of some of, you know, Oz's very poor favorability. And also what, what Miles mentions that, that, uh, you know, there might be some, uh, you know, gubernatorial uh, um, coattails that, that could very well help Fetterman. And so I, you know, it's, it's, it's a, uh, you know, Oz is, Oz has certainly come back, but it's, um, it's still very much, um, it's still very much in flux. And, you know, again, looking for upsets. I mean, again, at this point, I think you're probably, we're probably thinking more like, you know, Democratic seats or Senate seats that end up flipping that we don't necessarily expect. I guess, you know, Arizona, New Hampshire, I guess, are, are probably the, the two you'd look at um, as, as the most competitive, you know, that where the Democrats are, are favored, but, but maybe we'll still would still uh, um, would still flip. And, you know, maybe maybe some of these uh, um, House races uh, as well. Yeah, well, I kind of stick with the House. Uh, I remember one one of the headlines I remember for Politico. I was re- back in 2010, like towards the end of the election, about this time, uh, they ran an article on the, the, the uh, House, and the t- title was Four House Republicans, It's Whack-A-Mole Season. And basically, point being, towards the end of the cycle, you had all of these longtime, seemingly strong Democratic incumbents. You know, these would be your John Dingles, your Jim Oberstars. You know, those seats start to come into play. Uh, and, you know, I'm seeing a bit of that this year as well. I mean, it's not 
not to say that all of those seats would flip, but, you know, I thought it was funny that uh, last week we moved New York 25, which was a Rochester seat. Um, you know, we moved that from safe Democratic. You know, it's it's a seat that that Joe Biden won by 20 points. Uh, but it had a really close call in 2014 when just things were really rough in New York that year for Democrats. You know, we we moved it from safe Democratic to uh, likely Democratic uh, last week. And I thought it was interesting that, that this week the parties were starting to spend there. So it's it's you know not to say that all those types of seats are going to flip. Uh, but, you know, I think, you know, we, to some degree, at least in the House, I still think we're sort of on wave watch here. So I want to talk a little bit more about the House and maybe start broader picture. And then we have some questions about specific races. The crystal ball is projecting a Republican gain in the House in the high teens or low 20s. And this week you all moved um, the open seat Colorado 8 from toss up to leans Republican, the open Florida 23 seat from safe to likely Democratic, the Illinois 6 from likely to leans Democratic the Kansas three seat from toss up to leans democratic and the New Jersey 11 from safe to likely democratic. Um, what's your thinking in this uh, penultimate round of ratings changes and what's going on in these races? Yeah, Florida 23 and New Jersey 11, that's more of the kind of wave watch that, that miles was talking about. And, you know, like these aren't, we're not going to pick the Republicans to win those races, but um, we, we saw just a, enough just to want to make put them on the list just to sort of flag them a little bit um you know it, it, just, just in case it, it ends up being um significantly bigger than we think my guess is that our final house projection will end up somewhere in the sort of you know we, we said high teens low 20s yesterday i'm thinking it's going to probably going to be in the 20s um and you know I, again i deserve the right to you know, to, to change our mind over, over the, over the weekend. But that's, I think that's probably where we're at. And, and again, that was sort of where we were several months ago. And then we sort of dialed it back a little bit to go into the teens. And again, it probably seems like we're going to end up, um, end up somewhere in, in the twenties in terms of, uh, um, of a, uh, um, Republican net gain. Um, there are three numbers that I think y'all ought to think, think about as you sort of measure the house, um, obviously, 218, that's the that's the magic number for the majority. Republicans only need to win five more seats than they won in 2020 to get to 218. Again, at this point, it'd be a pretty huge shock if, if Republicans did not get to at least 218. The second number is 235. That would be a Republican net gain of 22. 235 is the number of House seats that Democrats won in 2018 when they won the majority. So that's maybe a, a decent measuring stick. And then the final number is 248. That would be a Republican net gain of 35. Um, that would be the biggest House majority for Republicans since right before the Great Depression in 1928. Um, you know, if, if it ends up being bigger than we think, um, you know, maybe that number comes into play. Again, that's a number we were thinking about, you know, a year ago. It sort of seemed like Republicans wouldn't get there. I don't think we're going to pick the Republicans to, to, to get there or get particularly close to it. But, you know, just 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 keep it in mind. Okay, we have a we have a question from Jacob. Um, can you talk about what you think is the likelihood of Indiana's first district flipping? Yeah, that's one that we have as a toss up right now. Yeah, I yeah, know, really, especially in the Trump era, 
education, you know, whether or not you have a college degree or not, is becoming as big a indicator of how people vote as stuff like race or gender. So basically, point being, Indiana's first district, which is which is sort of up in the Gary area, um, you know, has a very is very much a working class area. Area you have Frank Mervan, who's a Democratic incumbent, and his family is well known there. Uh, he's being outraised by his Republican challenger, uh, uh, Jan- Jennifer Ruth uh, Green. Um, what I always remind people of it is that it was sort of a surprise in 2020 uh, that Republicans ended up gaining seats in the House, um, and all of the seats that Republicans flipped in 20 in 2020, uh, they did it with either a minority or a woman. Well, she is both. Um, so, you know, definitely the type of candidate that you know, she has a good uh, type type of resume on her own as well. But the type of candidate that Republicans are really uh, uh, trying to get out there, um, you know, it's funny because earlier this year, you know, a big story of the House this year is redistricting. You know, there was some talk, OK, well, you know, this is a seat that Joe Biden won by eight points. Uh, which, you know, historically speaking, that isn't that big, but, you know, it's still a kind of light blue seat. Republicans could have carved it up in redistricting. As it turns out, they may not have needed to. Sometimes what happens in a, you know, in a, in a good midterm year for a party is, is that it, it ends up being kind of about a, a realignment story. Um, certainly, I think that was the case in 2018 when, Democrats, you know, flipped a lot of traditionally Republican suburban districts, but there are also places that where Trump struggled compared to previous Republican presidential candidates. And so the, the erosion you saw at the 2016 presidential level um, bled down to the ballot, down the ballot in the, in the, in the House races in a lot of those places in 2018. Um, 2010 is a good example of that, too, that, you know, the Republicans flipped a lot of uh, places that had had, uh, you know, that were Republican at the presidential level and, and had, you uh, you know, had 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 uh, um, longtime Democratic incumbents or longtime Democratic DNA, et cetera. Um, and so there might be kind of a realignment story here, too. And I think that Indiana one would be a great example if it flips. And I think that's a that's a relatively difficult one to, to call. But um, if indeed it flips, it'll be part of a realignment story. I would, I would also, def, you know, look at South Texas. There are three Democratic held seats um, in that part of the country, that's traditionally Democratic area where um, Trump really made very huge gains in 2020 compared to 2016. And, you know, there's a world in which Republicans could end up winning all three of the House seats down there, um, which, again, would be would be a political earthquake down there, but it would also be a sign of of, uh, of realignment. So that's, you know, that's something to watch for, too. Beyond the the, the, the environment, you also think about, you know, these these uh, results could potentially be revelatory about longer term trends. So northern northwest Indiana, so- southern Texas are two places to look. Actually, Carl, on that, that, that note, uh, one of the maps I have hanging in my office uh, is one of Indiana in 2012. Uh, and Joe Donnelly, when he won that year, he would have taken uh, like he would have won that first district. You know, it's still fundamentally now that the. Uh, the uh, same as it was, was uh, then, we wanted by over 30 points. <laughs> and, you know, that could be one that goes Republican this year, uh, you know, just because of those longer term trends. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of times we talk about how stable American politics are and, and how stable people's voting patterns are, which is true in a lot of places. But there's also a, a, a lot of churn in the electorate. 
Um, and, you know, places that go from being, you know, super Republican or super Democratic at the start of a decade. And then by the end of the decade, they're they're voting the other way. And um, um, again, those are those are uh, those are a couple places to uh, to look. We also had a question come in earlier this week about Oregon Five, um, and specifically, you know, why the Democrats were cutting spending there. Which, you know, is it? I, I think, why are they cutting spending in a toss-up district and diverting it to what should be a safer district? Can you speak to that and maybe even some larger twin trends about where you're seeing decisions being made on where to spend? Yeah, I mean, generally speaking, you know, there's the the um, the spending is sort of breaking into more kind of more and more bluer districts, which again is a sign of you can sort of view it as a, as, as almost like a sign of retreat and retrenchment by the Democrats. And uh, the what's happened in the Oregon races is a great example of how that can work. In that, you know, there are six districts in Oregon now. The Democrats drew drew the districts that uh, in a way in which they thought they could win five of the six of them. Oregon five is the most marginal of those districts. Democrats want to win. Um, and then there's Oregon four and Oregon six that are more democratic leaning. All three of them are open seats. Um, and, you know, the money has moved from, from Oregon five to Oregon six, which tells me again, retreat and retrenchment. That's why we moved that race to leans Republican in our ratings. Um, there, there's been just a lot of just bad buzz about Oregon for the last several months, um, both in the house races and also in the governor's race out there where, you know, the Republicans, I think have a decent chance to win in this three-way race, although it still remains really close. And one caution I would just have, and I would apply this to Illinois and New York and Oregon and Washington state, you know, blue states where there's been some rumbles about about Republicans making up some ground. And that would be that it is sometimes possible. It sometimes happens that the, the kind of majority party in a state will get a little underestimated by polling. And I bring that up only to say that if the Democrats end up holding out in Oregon, um, it may just be because there's just something off about the numbers out there. Again, that's not necessarily what I'm expecting. Um, it's just that, you know, I could just imagine a world in which, um, you know, the, the Democrats get written off in the governor's race out there in some of the House seats and then they end up winning just because they're fundamentally um, the state and those districts are just are just blue, you know, blue leaning places. Yeah, that's that's really something we're having to consider when it comes to the governor's race there as well, not to get ahead of stuff. But, you know, if uh, if Kotech ends up ends up pulling it out, you know, just the lean of the state, maybe, you know, it's a state that bought him one by 15 points. Um, you know, I think the general partisanship of the state may be a bit much to overcome. We got we have five toss up gubernatorial races. Three of them are in classic swing states, uh, Arizona, Wisconsin and um, Nevada. And then two of them are in you know states that really aren't presidential swing states. I mentioned Oregon, blue state, toss up race. And then Kansas, you know, red state um, where you've got an incumbent governor and Laura Kelly. And I got to tell you that the Oregon and Kansas gubernatorial races I think they're both pretty difficult for, from a handicapping perspective. I mean, just candidly here, like I think the Republicans are probably going to do pretty well amongst that toss up group of governor's races, those five. Um, but you know, it, there, there's a world in which the only Democrat who wins out of those five is Laura Kelly in Kansas. And that's the reddest state, but like, that's a, that's on the table is happening. And that would be kind of odd. Um, but then it's also a question of, well, should you just sort of go with the fundamentals and, and the, the, the baseline partisanship, which would suggest that Kelly probably should end up losing. 
So we had another question come in from a listener, and we actually, you both already addressed this a little bit already in the Arizona race, but do you think there's going to be much of an impact uh, by third by third parties in this election? Well, the Oregon race is actually an interesting example of that because there's a third party ex-Democrat who's running in that race. You know, I think that the lower her share is, is I think the bad, bad or for Democrats, it's going to uh, uh, end up being. Uh, but that's that's uh, that's that's a good question. Why do you, why do you think? Uh, you know, there are a handful across the country. You know, I mean, we talked about the Arizona Senate race in which the Libertarian dropped out, but of course he's still on the ballot, and so you know he'll still probably end up getting some tiny sliver of the vote. One general thing about third party candidates is they usually poll better than they actually end up. Uh, um, performing. And so you could sometimes have um, uh, independent candidates who look like they're going to be a huge factor in the race and they sort of fall off. Um, another race, and I, I can't even remember the guy's name, but, you know, Rhode Island two open seat, Democratic leaning seat that Republicans actually have a decent chance to win with a pretty strong mm-hmm. candidate there and Alan Fung. There's a third party candidate there who sometimes polls pretty significantly. And I would think that part of Fung's winning strategy would be that Maybe Fung gets under 50%, but there's enough going to the third-party candidate that he can still win with less than less than 50, um, handful of others across the country, but but that might be another one to watch. Well, uh, one of the uh, bigger races that we're watching and as well uh, is, you know, if Democrats end up pulling out in Nevada, which, you know, the at least what we're seeing in the, the uh, mail tends to look better for Republicans, but... I mean, Cortez Masto doesn't need 50. You know, in Nevada, you can actually vote none of the above, which people is an option that uh, that people do take. Um, and so, you know, you'll sometimes like I think there was a, one of the public polls had had it like Cortez Masto was up like 45, 41 or something in the Senate race. And you think, man, you know, God, that's a lot of undecideds or whatever. But, um, you know, you don't you really don't need 50 percent to win in that state, given some of the third party candidates and also the, uh, the, the, you know, the none of the above option. Kyle and Miles, just want to thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us today. Um, for listeners tuning in, um, thank you so much for joining us. If you have any final questions, feel free to share them now. Um, you can tweet or DM them to us really quickly here. Um, I do want to point out that Lou Jacobson, who is a senior columnist for The Crystal Ball, also has a new article out today that rates 11 Secretary of State races and 12 State Attorney, Attorney General races as competitive. We'll reshare that link out as well. So um, we're not going to address that here, but do be sure to read Lou's piece on the crystal ball. And Kyle and Miles will have a final post uh, next week. Anything else you want to add? Uh, Kara, thanks for um, thanks for moderating today. Uh, Kara recently joined us at the Center for Politics and is uh, doing a great job with our uh, Politics is Everything podcast and a lot of other things at the Center. So we really appreciate having her as part of our uh, part of our team. And yeah, we'll look out for our uh, um, final picks on Monday. And uh, you know, we'll see we'll see, <laughs> we'll see how it goes. Well, thank you both. It's it's an honor to get to work with you. And thank you all for tuning in. podcast listeners. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Politics is Everything. Editing and production was done by me. Our theme song is Let's Boogie by Chris Bays. 
Learn more about the Center for Politics and its work to strengthen democracy on our website at centerforpolitics.org. Be sure to also follow us on Twitter at center number four politics. You can also send us a recording of your questions or ideas for strengthening democracy to goodpolitics at virginia.edu. Until next time.